where it says that eyes that see and ears that hear both are gifts from the Lord. How often in your word it says, if you have ears to hear and eyes to see, then listen and see what it is that God is saying and what it is he's doing. This is one of Jesus' favorite phrases. He who has eyes or he who has ears, let him hear, let him see. I was just reminded that the ability to see Jesus, the ability to see what he's doing and receive your words, God, the words of life, that's a gift from you, the ability to receive. So I would pray for each of us in this room today, God, that that gift, that we would receive that gift to see and to hear what it is that God is doing and what it is that his word is speaking. Eyes that see, ears that hear, both are a gift from the Lord. Lead us into your word, God. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. This morning, as uh, I woke up early and I was praying, and I began uh, to sense in my heart and in my mind and in my spirit um, an encouragement from the Lord for us, and uh, has we'll let the Spirit of God tie it in <laughs> to the sermon because I was again it wasn't something that was planned, but I felt strongly that this was for us today. So um, maybe this is for one person, maybe this is for all of us, but I, I just want to submit this to you and ask you to receive it if, if this is from you. Um, it's so easy to think that who we've been determines um, absolutely who we are and who we will be. And I think apart from Christ, that, that is reality. Who we've been determines who we are and who we're going to be. Um, but praise be to God that because of the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ, that it, no matter who we were and who we've been, God can do a new thing today. He can do a new thing right now. Who you've been, what you've struggled with, what you've wrestled with, the things that have hurt you, they do not define who you are in Jesus Christ. He defines who you are. Jesus defines who you are. So if there's a hardness of heart, if there's a bitterness, if there's a root of bitterness that has grown in your life, if if there's a pain that keeps you um, from being free in him, let his word saturate you and heal you today and let him speak this over you that, that, that his power, if you don't believe that, then your view of God is so small. if we don't believe that God can actually change us and change who we are, then we have limited almighty God down to something that we think we can control and understand. Let us not do that. So whatever it is that God wants to do, whatever it is he wants to say, whatever fresh start in his kingdom, in his spirit that he wants to give you right now, um, I would invite you, and, and speaking to my own soul, receive that. Receive that today. We are not made of concrete. We are made of flesh and spirit. And we are to be clay that God molds. And, and if it needs to be remade, guess what he does? He crushes it back down, puts it back on the wheel, and remakes it into a beautiful thing. So let's receive that today. We're in uh, Acts chapter, the end of Acts chapter 4 in our series through Acts and the beginning of Acts chapter 5, continuing in our series about learning to hear and discern 
the will of God. I started this whole series with Psalm chapter 28 and 29. And in 28, David prays, Speak, O Lord, for if you are silent, I might as well give up and die. And then he says in Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord thunders over the waters. The voice of the Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord uh, breaks forth across the earth. The, the Lord sits as king over the earth, as king over the flood. And so there's this conversation that's happening back and forth in these two Psalms where David recognizes the fact that there is no life worth living outside of the word of God and God speaking. Speak, O Lord, for if you are silent, I might as well give up and die. And then triumphantly there's this cry, God is speaking, God has spoken, and God will speak because God's voice goes out across the earth. And so we engage God's word today in 2018 in a number of ways. We engage his word through his written word. So when we engage this, we're coming to the things that God has uttered through the ages and his spirit has saw fit to give to us as a great gift that when we seek his counsel, we can come to this and learn about our mighty God. He speaks to us in community as we, as we talk to one another, as iron sharpens iron. When we come together in community, the voice of the Lord is present there. That's what 1 Corinthians 2 is about, that together we, through the Spirit of God, have the mind of Christ. He speaks through experiences which need to be submitted to his word, but he speaks to them like the times that we, we pray for, for healing and he heals, or the times that we pray for our friends to come to know him, and they come to know him. That's God speaking. That's God working. That's the word of life in action. And indeed, he speaks, he speaks um, in, in us serving him. When, when we go and serve alongside Jesus and give a cup of cold water to those who are thirsty, when, when we go to the, the ends of the earth to preach the gospel, that's, the, that's God speaking, speaking through us, joining in him. So there's so many ways that the Lord is speaking, and so many times we just want to box it in to say, well, well they heard God's voice that way. That was for them. It's not for us today. That's a lie from the enemy. God wants to speak as clearly to us today as he has to any generation. He wants, he wants his voice to go forward and he wants us to learn to listen and hear. So this is why um, we're in this, this series to, to encourage one another to learn to grow in what it means to hear God's word and his voice. And this is an important passage today. And this is one of the times where I really wish our Bibles didn't have chapters Because the end of chapter 4 belongs with the beginning of chapter 5. And I think, um, and I'm guilty of this, I often read by chapters. So I'll stop uh, at the end of a chapter when it's in the middle of an ongoing thought that the writer of scripture had. And and the beginning of chapter 5 is is tied in. It cannot be separated from from the end of chapter chapter 4. So just as a note, as you're reading your scriptures, read context. Don't just read chapters and verses. That, you can, that can really trip you up. Read context. So look at the greater context and, and read in that, in that way. That's a very helpful way to read the scriptures. All right. Acts, the, the end of Acts chapter 4 mirrors Acts chapter 2. So I want you to note the similarities. So I'm going to cover uh, the end of Acts chapter 2 real quick. It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals including the Lord's Supper and a prayer. 
A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything that they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship, those who were being saved. Then comes chapter 3, where Peter and John are going to the temple, and the man who was born a paralytic is healed, and that causes quite the commotion, and a crowd gathers, and Peter sees his opportunity, and he preaches the gospel, and that gets him and John arrested, and they spend the night in jail, and then they appear before the Sanhedrin, and that leads us up to chapter the end of chapter 4. Once again, all the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. There's echoes of chapter 2 here. And remember, one of the things that I've shared is when something is repeated in the scriptures, that's elevating its importance. So the fact that this this idea is repeated is showing us how important it is. It's It's a purposeful repetition of this idea. Now look at this phrase in verse 32. All the believers were united in heart and mind. Do you remember how the disciples treated one another when Jesus was still with them? Were they united in heart and mind before the death of Christ? How how often did they end up bickering among one another? How, How often did they end up fighting over really silly things? Like, can you imagine how mad you'd be in, if you were in their shoes and James and John through their mom, which is just such a backdoor way, or like, hey, Jesus, so when you enter into your kingdom, my two boys on your right hand and left hand, right? And, and so they're all in agreement that they're going to have this conversation with Jesus. And, um, and the other disciples were furious. They were so mad at them that they would try to claim those places of honor for themselves. So Jesus says, no, no, no. Among you, it's the opposite of that. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you don't seek the seat of honor. You wash people's feet. Because in my kingdom, those who serve are great, not those who seek honor. That's the way of the world. Or, or the times that they bickered about money, or the times that they bickered about um, who's the most important in the kingdom. Uh, and they're, I'm sure in their minds, they're like, where do I fit? You got Moses, Elijah, Peter. You know, like where, they're trying to figure it out where they fit. So they argue about the silliest things. And it's easy, you see Jesus' frustration at times. And, I, and it's easy for me when I'm reading it to look down on them, but then I remember that I'm just like that. So often I'm just like that. How drastic this change is after the resurrection and the spirit of God indwells them. What a different spirit. All the believers were united in heart and mind. This is the power of God through the resurrection of Christ, through the spirit of God dwelling in his people. They were united in heart and mind. Same people. Same people that struggled with all that. And they felt, I love the way the NLT translates this, they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. Isn't that beautiful? When they looked around at the things that God had blessed them with, they loved one another so deeply that they thought to themselves, this isn't mine. It's ours. 
It's ours. I think it's hard for us to even wrap our minds around what that could look like in our hyper-individualized, consumeristic society. They felt like what they owned was not their own, so they gladly shared everything that they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. And there were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So the the grammatical um, makeup of the Greek uh, sentence is an ongoing present thing. So it wasn't as if everybody sold all their stuff at the same time. Um, And the NIV, I think, translates this a little bit better. The idea is, as needs arose, those who had sold what they had extra and gave to cover the need. That's the idea. It was was an ongoing thing. Now, um, in this culture... The, um, the middle class made up about 10% or less of the population. So very, very, very small amount of the population that owned land and owned houses and owned property. The upper class was even smaller, and it was something like they think about 4% of the population. So only about 4% of the population owned uh, were, were considered wealthier upper class, which leaves a huge lower class uh, segment of, of uh, the people uh, at this time that would not have owned land, they would not have owned their own businesses, they would, not, they would have been day laborers, that sort of thing. Um, and so it's not like everyone's got land to sell in this situation. It's those who do, um, which would have been a small amount, gave what they had to care for those who were in need. And I love, this is so beautiful, um, that there was none among them uh, that, that were needy because of this. There were no needy people. Now, for instance, so Luke is going to give us an example of this. For instance, he says, and now we're going to be introduced to Barnabas. Anybody ever hear, hear of Barnabas before? Uh, what's Barnabas famous for? Courage? Yeah, encouragement. He, who did he travel with famously? The, the Apostle Paul. So he was uh, the Apostle Paul's companion. And actually, in the beginning of Paul's life, Barnabas is, is really a spiritual authority figure in, in Paul's early ministry, and in, in Paul's early walk with Christ. And Barnabas is one of Luke's heroes of the story. Luke is going to talk about Barnabas over 20 times in the book of Acts. And even after Barnabas and, and Paul split over their, their argument about John Mark, Luke still thinks very, very highly of, of Barnabas. And every time he talks about him, he talks about him in a way of, of saying, this is an example worth following. So we're going to be introduced to Barnabas this morning. It says, for instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Which is kind of confusing because Barnabas doesn't mean son of encouragement. That's not what that, mean, that name means. It might mean son of a prophet. Um, and, and scholars have argued over what that name actually, actually means. But the best guess that, that people have is that it, it means son of a prophet. And what is a prophet's main role? To encourage the people of God. To exhort the people of God. Now, that's, that's the ideal prophetic role. Well, I think we tend to think of prophets as these hard people who break things. That's not what a prophet of God was designed to do or even God wants them to do or even a prophet was made to do by God primarily. 
Yes, there are times prophets have to break things. But in the kingdom of God, when, when the spirit of God is flowing um, through, through a prophetic gifting, the goal is actually exhortation and encouragement, not breaking down, not tearing down. Although that's, that's a piece of it. The, the, the primary goal is to encourage and build up. And so his name, Barnabas, probably son of a prophet, and the implication is he encourages and exhorts, he reminds the people of God's word and what God says. Now he, uh, picking back up in verse 36, he was from the tribe of Levi, so he was a Levite, and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Now this might be confusing for those of you who are Old Testament scholars, because what's the one tribe that's not allowed to own land in the Old Testament? The Levites. And here this Levite, uh, we're told that he sells a piece of property um, and get, brings the money to the church. So in, um, after the exile, the Levites began to own land, and their role was, was shifted after the return from, from the exile. And uh, Barnabas actually grew up in Cyprus, which uh, would have been Hellenistic and Greek culture. So he did not grow up in Israel. He uh, probably did not grow up speaking much uh, Aramaic. Um, he would have uh, spoken Greek uh, probably as his uh, main language. Now, he sold a field he owned, and he brought the money to the apostles. Now, this is where it's confusing, because this is where the chapter ends, and it seems like that's the end of it. But the, the next story we're going to read, um, which I have not been looking forward to, to preaching on, because it's <laughs> there's some difficulties with it, to say the least, um, but they're connected. They're absolutely connected. So, chapter 5, verse 1, which is really just a continuation But, so here we have Barnabas who sold the land and gave it freely. For instance, Luke says, but. So this is specifically in contrast to that story. You can't have this story without the other story. Luke is showing the good and he's showing the bad. He's showing the light and he's showing the darkness. And you're not going to understand the one without the other. But... Chapter 5, verse 1, there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles claiming it was the full amount with his wife's consent and he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not to sell. As you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. Now there's a couple of really important things in here that help us understand the early church. This clearly shows us that the people were not being forced to sell everything that they owned. Rather, it was voluntary. So Peter says to Ananias, no one made you do this, right? This was your choice. We, no, one, no one said, you, you have to do this in order to be a part of this church. Rather, you made the choice to sell this. And then you could have told us, hey, here's the portion we feel led to give. And you could have kept the rest. But rather, you sold the field, 
deceitfully kept the portion and then came to us and said it was the whole thing. Why are you lying to God about that? Just be honest. The other thing that's really interesting in this before we move on is where Peter says, why have you let uh, Satan fill your heart? Why have you let Satan fill your heart? So this touches on some mysterious things. Um, And I would be lying to say that I understand them fully at all. Um, So for the Christian, for for the believer, for the person in Christ, um, the word of God is clear that you have been sealed in Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 1 and a number of other places. But you have been sealed in Christ as a guarantee with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance in in God, but you've been sealed with Christ, which means the one who dwells within you is not the enemy. Rather, it's the Spirit of God. So in Christ, you've been sealed by Christ through His Spirit. You belong to Him. So, So He possesses you in the way that you were meant to be possessed. Now, Peter says to Ananias, a person who apparently has some sort of relationship with Christ, why has Satan, why have you let Satan fill your heart? Um, in, in the spiritual walk at, with Christians, we've been sealed with Christ, which means nothing's allowed in unless we give permission to it to come in. So the enemy is still seeking to deceive and to kill and destroy and is still seeking a way in, even to Christians, Um, into their spirits, into their minds, into their hearts. But we're protected by clinging, abiding in Christ. We're we're protected, we're sealed by him. But we still have the ability to give permission to the enemy by saying yes to sin, by saying yes to that which is wrong, by saying yes to that is evil. We can still agree with the work of the enemy allowing Satan to then fill us even though we've been sealed with Christ. Does that make sense? Are you, are you tracking with me? So there's an agreement there. Now what's really interesting about this is that in Revelation chapter 2, in the, in the letter to Laodicea, which is a letter to Christians, this, the Spirit of God writes the letter to Christians, to people who have a relationship with Christ, and he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now we use that as an, evangel- uh, we use that as an evangelistic verse, which is strange because this is a verse written to Christians. Jesus says to Christians, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, I will come in and I will sit down and have fellowship with you. I will share a meal with you. This is said to believers. This is said to people who have already been sealed with the Spirit of God. Does the enemy not always counterfeit the work of God? He always counterfeits that which was good. Behold, in the same way the enemy is seeking, roaming the earth, Peter says, looking for someone to devour. And he too is knocking. And just like we can open to Christ and allow him fellowship with us, we still have the ability to do the same thing, to agree with the deceit and the lie of the enemy. Now the things that Satan promises are the same things that Jesus promises, just a shadow version. Which is why he says to Adam and Eve, if you take this fruit and eat it, you shall be like God and you shall never die. 
when we eat of the body of Christ and, the, and drink the blood of Christ and walk in forgiveness with Christ in his resurrection power, he says the exact same two things. You shall never die because anyone who has a relationship with Jesus has eternal life and you shall be like God. That's the true version of it. That's, that's the actual promise. So the enemy took the promises of God, the eternal promises of God, that his people would live forever and that we would be like our father, like Jesus, like God. And the enemy says those two things to us, but the lesser shadow version. If you eat this, you shall be like God, not in the way that God wanted us to be like him, and you shall, never, you, you shall surely not die, which certainly led to, to actual physical and spiritual, spiritual death. So the reason why I bring that up is just to remind us that what we open our spirits to is important and matters. What we open our our lives to um, affects how we walk out our relationship with the Lord and with the church. And so Peter saying to Ananias, a, a child who has some sort of relationship, I don't know what his heart was like, but has some sort of relationship with Christ. He says, why did you let Satan fill you? When that lion came prowling at the door, you didn't have to open it. Why did you open the door and let him come in and fellowship with you and deceive you? How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. The story goes on. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. That would be pretty scary, right? If someone walked in the door today and dropped dead, it would change the atmosphere. Am I right? All right. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, what was the price you and your husband received for your land? Was this the price you and your husband received for the land? So she comes in, and he shows the money that Ananias had given and says, was this the full amount? Yes, she replied. She didn't know what had happened. That was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. It's a tough story. That's a tough story. People dropping dead... Um, and, and it's hard to understand what's going on. What, what I trust, what I think the Lord is doing is he's protecting the innocence of his bride in the early stages as she's just forming and giving us a parable, giving us a story to know that we are not to be a people of, of seeking our own satisfaction. We're not to be a people of deceit, that, that God is serious about honesty and about us walking with uh, vulnerability, transparency, and truth uh, with one another. Um, as I was praying this week, the Lord put a couple other scriptures on my mind. Oh, this is the end of it, sorry. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who had heard what had happened. All right, Luke 16. Now, Luke is the book that was written as part one of Acts. And this is Jesus' words about money um, in Luke, some of what he says about money. He says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. 
you cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Or if you've got, I, I think it's King James, if you've got an older version, or, or you've, you've probably heard, you can't serve God and mammon. You've heard that phrase before, God and mammon? All right, which is the phrase there. Um, then it goes on to say, the Pharisees who dearly loved their money heard all this and scoffed at him. Then he said to them, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. So Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon. Can you see that? Can you turn on the, those front lights? Is that possible? The big spotlights? This is a painting by my brother-in-law who's a phenomenal artist who's trained at the Corcoran in D.C., um, and it's called That in Which You Trust. Um, his name is Travis Wagner. Um, and what it is, is, is it's a glacier. And like all glaciers, um, most of it is underneath the surface of the water. And he called it That in Which You Trust because the word mammon, um, the literal definition of the, the demon, mammon, or the, the word mammon, is that in which you trust. So Jesus says you cannot serve God and serve this other thing in which you trust. Put your trust in God alone. So I want to read the description of this painting by my brother-in-law. And some of the statistics have changed because this was years ago. Can you see the, the skeletons and stuff underneath the surface of it? All right, the official national debt is $17 trillion and steadily climbing. Um, I checked this week and it's $15.6 trillion. This places about $54,000 of debt on each person living in America. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. America and Americans have been living beyond their means for decades. This kind of greed has a deeper root. While most Americans may claim to have some sort of Judaic Christian outlook on a higher power, the one thing that is worshipped above that God is money. Americans go to work, get paid, pay the bills, accumulate things, and then repeat the cycle at whatever cost. This repetitive ritualistic cycle is readily identifiable as the worship of mammon. Mammon is an ancient Sumerian deity that represents the accumulation of wealth and property. Within the context, uh, within the ancient Hebrew text, the root word of mammon is mamona, which can be translated as that in which you trust. The illusion that Americans are seeing as the national debt is only the tip of the iceberg. Seated in the root of this greed is the worship of this deity, mammon, Just below Mammon, seated on his throne, is the root of the iceberg. And in his statement, he says, I am Mammon. I am that in which you trust. You are welcome to believe whatever you see fit, and you are welcome to tithe to whomever makes you feel safest. But at the end of every workday, at the end of every work week, at the end of every pay period, and at your bank with every deposit you make, I am the one who receives your worship. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there your desire, the desires of your heart will be also. Your eye is like a lamp. I'm going to skip over down to the bottom. No one can serve two masters, verse 24, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Ananias and Sapphira were worshiping mammon. They were worshiping, they were trusting in something other than God. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, 
um, it's easy for us to read passages like this, or especially the passage to the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, follow the commandments. And he says, I have since I was a youth. And then Jesus says, sell everything you have and come follow me. And the young man went away sad because he had great possessions. And Jesus wept, uh, uh, Jesus was heartbroken for him because he loved the young man, it says in one of the Gospels. Now, it's easy to read passages like that and think, okay, in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus, I have to sell, like literally sell everything I have and follow him. And that's not, I don't believe that's what the text or what the scriptures are saying. What they're saying is that what God says in your life goes. To one person, he says, sell everything you have and follow me. And if he says that to you, you had better sell everything you have and follow him. He is your God. He is your master, your ruler, your Lord. To another, and there's examples of this in the New Testament, um, faithful people who aren't told to sell all they have. Like um, Theophilus, who was the patron of Luke um, and paid for his travels and paid for him to write the book of Luke and Acts. Or like... um, uh, the, the woman, oh, she's slipping my mind, who, who was the patron of Paul um, and uh, helped him with his travels. Lydia. And, um, and uh, there's others in the scriptures who are wealthy and God calls them to use their wealth in a different way. What Jesus says to every single person, every single one of us, is this. Follow me. Follow me. Do not serve money as your master. Do not serve that demon. It will suck your soul dry. It will suck the life out of you. And this is why the example of Ananias and Sapphira are held up against the example of Barnabas who gave freely and followed wherever Jesus called him. Let us be like that. So for each one of us, the call is slightly different because all of us are different. None of us have the same life. None of us have the exact same call except the base of the call, which is always the same. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. So how do you discern what you are to do? You need to be in community. You need to be in the word. You need to be in prayer. And you need to be listening together in all of those ways to learn what it is that Jesus is saying about your wealth, about about the, the ways that God would have you share, about the ways that God would have you serve. You can't figure it out on your own. Don't try. You have to figure it out together with the people of God and the word of God. We're going to close our time seeing Cornerstone. Um, so if the praise team could come up. I want to close our, our, our time singing these words that, that my hope is built on nothing else than Jesus Christ. Where your treasure is, there also will be your heart. Would you join me in prayer and just pray that Jesus would truly be the, the treasure of our heart and that we would hold all the wealth, all the things that God gives us, all the possessions, all the time we have, that we would hold it open-handed and say, here, Lord, it's yours. Whatever you say, will do. If you want me to give it away, I'll give it away. If you want me to, to, to store it up because you have uh, a way that you're going to bless the church down the road or bless someone down the road or, or my children in a special way, whatever it is, what I'm saying is there's not a one-size-fits-all. Um, rather, the, the commandment is follow God with however he says to use it because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so if that thing dominates you, you cannot fully worship God because it's dominating you. It's that in which you put your trust. So God, we pray that you alone would be the thing in which we trust. You alone would be that which we trust, God. That you alone would be the treasure of our hearts and souls and minds and our eyes. That we would place all of our focus upon you to follow after you and whatever you say that we would obey. God, we thank you for your church. We thank you for your people. 
We bless you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.